Declassify, verb, meaning to officially declare information or documents to be no longer secret. In the art world, there's always more than what meets the eye. I'm Parker. And I'm Georgia. And this is Declassified. We're your hosts, here to uncover stories, truths, and other clues to solve the mystery of success in this complex industry. Access lies at the heart of our mission. We amplify as many voices as we can. Featuring artists, collectors, curators, advisors, historians, and entrepreneurs, listening as they tell us what it's like to walk in their shoes. So, Declassified, today we are very excited to have the visionary gallerist Kavi Gupta with us. Kavi started his namesake gallery in 2000, which has been growing ever since. Kavi Gupta the Gallery has hosted countless beautiful and influential exhibitions and has participated in the world's most esteemed international fairs, including Freeze and Art Basel. Currently on view in Chicago, the gallery's home base, is Beverly Fishman's Feels Like Love, a thoughtful assembly of rich, geometric, Easter egg-colored paintings about the United States' fragile relationship with pharmaceuticals and healing. This Washington Boulevard headquarters also houses Argavan Kazravi's The Witness and an exclusive installation by Tomokazu Matsuyama. And at their outpost on Elizabeth Street, Kavi Gupta is showing Devin Shimayama's A Counterfeit Gift Wrapped in Fire and Elisa Siclianos Carter's Stars Are Born in Darkness. In addition to putting on great shows like these, the gallery is constantly making space for intellectual exchange through talks, philanthropy, and other community programs. Like his gallery, Kavi is a staple of the Chicago arts community, expanding on the patronage of his family, some of the most prolific collectors of contemporary Indian art in the world. Kavi holds a degree in art history from Northern Illinois University and a business degree from University of Chicago. He brings together his passion and savvy to champion underrepresented artists in this community and beyond. His gallery has earned three highly prestigious International Association of Art Critics Awards, or the IACA USA, in 2011, 2013, and again in 2015. They've expanded, now with several locations in the Midwest and a publishing arm, while maintaining their vision to, quote, seek out and offer a platform to artists whose vitality expands and deepens the cultural conversation, especially if theirs is a voice that has been marginalized. So Declassified, hopefully you can see why we are positively thrilled to talk to Kavi today. Without further ado, welcome, Kavi. How's your day so far? (laughs) It's been interesting. (laughs) Thank you so much, and thank you for having me um, on this podcast. the the peers and uh, mentors and everyone else that you've chosen to be on this podcast are uh, wonderful people and and the and the real cross section to uh, the real art world and uh, I'm I'm excited to be part of it and to thank both of you uh, your 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 knowledge and your enthusiasm is is needed and your amplification is needed. Well, Kavi, thank you so much. It means so much coming from you. Um, And I think we're really excited to talk to you because I think you really occupy this wonderful niche in the art world that we haven't really gotten to explore yet um, on the pod. So our central question for you today is what's a gallery's function? And one reason we're so excited um, that you're joining us is I think your answer to that question is going to be different than a lot of other gallerists. Um, And hopefully it really, I think, really aligned with kind of what Parker and I um, are so passionate about in the art world. So why don't we start big picture um, and then we can move to more specifics about what um, your specific enterprise does. But um, on the whole, in your opinion, like what does a gallery do? Oof. You know, it is, the definition of a gallery has changed so much. Um, And it is still an antiquated system. Um, So I think if you want to phrase the question as what does the typical gallery do versus what, let's say, uh, a very uh, proactive, progressive gallery like like we like 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 we would do. Um, I can answer either. Both are could be. Uh, I'll try to keep them as brief as possible, but uh, both nuanced. Yeah, great. I think answering both would be super helpful. Okay, um, let's look back. Uh, so you know the traditional art gallery existed in a time when there was 
uh, very little communication. You know, uh, that was the that was the big issue, and mm -hmm. you needed filters, and you needed tastemakers, and you needed connectors, and they served all of those purposes first and foremost. So, um, whereas the art world was small, they were the big players. Um, so let's say this goes back even to pre-80s, and um, they, their job was really to be the tastemakers, decide who they liked, um, mm -hmm. and then use their connections, and I'm hand-quoting, to make things happen for them. And, you know, you can... I've read like you know Leo Costelli's book. There have been some really nice ones that have been put out, which are actually very thoughtfully written and uh, are coming from third parties. So there's you're not getting the uh, the um, the view of uh, that was presented and proposed, you know, by the gallerist at that time. Just like you know the Warhol Diaries right now. It's nice to mm -hmm. hear other people talk about them as real people and they knew that if they were really good at meeting people and making a social scene and being able to connect they could make an artist substantial or important mm -hmm. in whatever uh, city they were in and then the next stage would be their connections abroad because they had the means to make an artist travel. Again, that whole art world was so small. So you're talking a few hundred artists, a few hundred galleries, and patrons that uh, are a fraction of what they are today. So overall, very few people are seeing art very little have access to it. There's very few artists, very few galleries. The whole ecosystem is very small. Um, the museums were big, but uh, the idea of modern, postmodern, contemporary was very small. Very, very, very small. I mean, if you're, looked, you're used to looking at museums today, uh, at that time, they might have one room, you know, if even. Mm -hmm. They were still dealing, uh, you know, Manet and you know, uh, and and the German expressionists even. So mm -hmm. that was their job. That was it. And uh, their job was to connect people and sell work, and that made the ecosystem run. So you sold the work to a prominent collector. That prominent collector did a party, told other people, put the name out there. Um, they bought in a series of connectors, which is, you know, not unlike today. In, 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 any, in any subjective world, it's really how it works. You, you know, you bring in, you've got Clement Greenberg on your side. You get Henry Geldzeller on your side. You get three or four people on your side. Um, and you get some press on your side. And you bring that group together, along with some affluent collectors, and let that snowball go down the hill that's that was her job yeah 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 so then so i think that's a great way to kind of like segue us into kind of the traditional view of how galleries kind of came about especially i think in the 80s 90s how they used to work but then could you compare that maybe to what your gal how your gallery works and like the kind of voices that you try to amplify um and kind of like the hierarchy of needs that you serve um as Kavi Gupta rather than maybe the traditional format of um what like a modern art gallery looks like Ooh. yeah you know so in between what I just described and unfortunately there are still some galleries that that they primarily function in that way, but they do extra things. We and I have always decided that um, all of the extra is what was the most important. And uh, it was, of course, all validated in the last two years, or two and a half years with COVID. And that has been discussed on your um, 
on your podcast previously, um, but uh, you know, we started out by finding artists that were not connected, that were not part of uh, today's Clement Greenberg scene or uh, a curator's scene because I knew uh, from being a Brown gallerist and having started when I started that there was no others like me and only you know in the last few years have I realized it took 15 years for me to get into any accredited art establishment um, even though my first show really was Felix Gonzalez Torres um, you know that's that just there's I think I spent so much of my time just proving <laughs> that the system was so rigged for so long, you know. Uh, so we we publish books because I find books that prove that point, such as Eleanor Monroe's book. And Eleanor just passed away, I think, yesterday or the day before. Her influential book on women artists in 1978, where she has studied in depth, um, oh, here we go, look at this pile of books right there. Um, studied in depth, um, I think through four, she calls them four groupings of women artists and starts with, sorry, this is getting long-winded, but I'm getting somewhere. It is, these are the kind of the crux of where my whole philosophy started. Um, so she lists off and in serious studio visits, pictures, everything, uh, four groups of artists starting with Lee Krasner, Alice Neal, Louis Nevelson, Louis Bourgeois, Helen Lund, uh, Alma Thomas is in this first group. Then she has a second group that and I won't go through all of them, but the point is Helen Frankenthaler, John Mitchell, the Kooning, Miriam Shapiro, Mary Frank, then it's the third, Beverly Pepper, Bet Betty Sarr, Sheila Hicks, Barbara Chase Rebeau, Lee Montague. Then, you know, the most recent, which ended in 78, was Faith Ringgold, uh, you know, uh, Patricia Johnson, Jennifer Bartlett, and there's a few others. So. The point is, is that none of those artists that I just named, the female artists, was showing in 1978. Mm -hmm. So wow. you look back, you they might have been showing in some galleries, maybe, but they did not exist. And mm -hmm. the writing is literally right here. It's in this mm -hmm. book, which I found the first copy of at uh, since since we're book geeks at. Um, Powell's in Portland at Betty Parsons Library, which they bought out, and it was her copy. And since then, I've been finding every copy I can, and I send that out as part of book packages to collectors and curators everywhere. And that ties into how we are different in that we publish. We publish lots and lots of books. We have a bookstore. We acquire lots and lots of books. Um, and we do an incredible amount of original research. So a quarter up to a half of our staff spends their time, in addition to some other things, but they are academics, they're writers, they're researchers. And that is what I enjoy, that is what we enjoy, and we are producing original content constantly and providing real proof and real uh, discourse and placing artists properly in a, a methodical way. Uh, so you cannot deny. The only, the only denial would come from uh, the existing academic class, which is still following the hundreds-year-old white male canon that describes contemporary art. And you know, we 
I just I didn't realize it at the time, but it's clear now that our goal was just to to make people understand, just like Civil War statues, that that time has ended. It can end, and a new discourse and a new canon has to start because there's no singularity in descriptions and and describers of individuals today like there was in, in the past. Uh, clearly that they were men and not women, as simple as that. Um, <laughs> that was the canon. It was white males <laughs> painting the perfect white painting. Today, the world is different. Um, I've been on other podcasts. I was on one a while ago where it was uh, lawyers asking questions. It was a really odd one, but they were saying, um, do, is, is this just a trend right now of artists of color and uh, BIPOC, LGBTQ artists, you know, and is that going to go away? The art world has always had trends and, you know, that's kind of a thing. And is it gonna go back to these great famous painters? And I just stopped and I said, and I was with David Moose at the time, who was a great academic and a curator. So he's a friend of Christie's as well, who's, I know, an organizer of this podcast. But we basically looked at each other and said, there are trends. This is not a trend because these people are here. <laughs> They're next to you. They're your neighbor. They've been here the whole time. You can't have a trend when it's, it, it, there's nothing to trend. It's maybe the acknowledgement of the person next to you is the way to say it, but it is not a trend. It is the acknowledgement of the rest of the population of the world. And that opens up how many new canons, lines of canons, that, or lineages, um, as many as we want. New definition is needed. New academic study is needed. I mean, I came through that route, Charles Harrison. I've got, at my art bookstore or my, or my library, I've got all of his 101s. I remember looking through one of the first ones, and I'd studied with him. There was, I don't think there was a female artist in it. I actually sent it to one of my staff and said, can you just go through this really, really thick book? I just, I'm not seeing something. I just want to make sure. And I think she came back with, I don't think there's a woman in there. <laughs> and it, it, it's so absurd to the point of uh, everything just needed to be different and changed on, on my end. Um, so that is the first thing. And then we spend money to ship all of those out. We have a whole fulfillment area that is just book boxes that are beautifully made and wrapped. And we fill them with our publications, uh, books that we think are, are interesting, um, that are important to the times, things that we want people to read, and we are sending them out nonstop. And, uh, and, you know, obviously it's a win-win in every scenario, but it sets a really good precedence for where you need to be uh, in terms of uh, if you're going to be looking at art, you, you need some level of contemporary knowledge and current knowledge. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think we've definitely, I, I definitely hear you on all those things. And I think especially the publication route that your gallery takes that you really foreground um, as sort of proof or evidence um, for the talent and the importance of, of your artists. And I'm wondering if you could kind of distill, of course we can all like read your mission online, but I think it's even more potent when it kind of comes straight from you. So if you could kind of distill exactly what your your gallery's mission is um, or your, your personal mission when it comes to your gallery, um, just for our listeners. Oh boy. So sorry, Georgia. Quickly, everybody, I am just going to point out and interrupt Georgia. Uh, for everyone listening, Georgia and I are getting a walking tour through Kavi's apartment. Kavi, it is beautiful. Can you tell us a little bit more about everything that we're seeing? 
Thank you. I, I think um, you know we were uh, featured in last month's uh, Architectural Digest, mm -hmm. uh, the art issue at the end of the year, with uh, Swizz Beats and Alicia Keys on the cover. And uh, this place we have built for a part of our collection. It took over three years. And uh, we just felt it was necessary. Um, it was actually really the start of our new mission in that it could showcase uh, specific works which um, come from artists that are friends of ours, and some of them 20-year friends. So you'll see like this Nick Gold sound tape. Yes, and you know, Nick has been a friend for as long as we can remember, and my wife is a curator at the University of Chicago Smart Museum, was the first Chicago museum to actually acquire a piece from Nick Cave, commissioned him to make an important piece and acquired multiple. And uh, again, it's a testament to the storyline that I keep, but also that it's, it's quite sad, but you know, since then we have been very close and seeing that, uh, that big, huge gap that uh, has been kept in the art world. And you know, this is now we're talking mid 80s to mid 2000s of mm -hmm. what was collected and it was not artists of color, it was barely women. So that's that void you're trying to fill and we became very aware of that. And our whole collection here, our works and artists that we've collected uh, over 25 years or I have, or commission, you know, like this Nick Cave, he, he built this piece with my wife for this place. It was designed around it's it. It's so special. And yeah, and every piece from the Micheline Thomas to the 63 Richard Hunt to the Jack Witten, which was actually owned by Henry Geldzeller. Um, mm -hmm. And we discovered that through our research. And, you know, if your listeners will know, I don't know where my camera is, there it is. Uh, the one on top is the Henry Geldzeller, and mm -hmm. it, uh, after research, we found that there's a small tag hidden in it that says Collection Geldzeller. And we tracked it back, and it was his. So it's, it proved that in the 80s, one of the most influential curators in New York and in the world, you know, who was buying major works for museums, defining mm -hmm generations and eras is collecting black abstraction for himself. Proof done. You know, it, it's mm -hmm. either he couldn't push it through or it wasn't the mandate of the time. So the whole place is set up like that to have these conversations around mm -hmm. uh, BIPOC, queer women, artists, and in scale with powerful works, historic and contemporary. And we wanted to have a place because we, art is a way of life and it's all set for us to do. What we like to do is to just not you know, entertain. The social life is so important to the art world. I mean, it's just kind of inherent. Sometimes I get mm -hmm. tired of talking to some of these people, but what I'd love to do is to bring people together of all mm -hmm areas, all stages. It doesn't matter who they are. I'm just looking for interesting people because there's a sense of idealism that just prevails in everybody who either collects art or is involved in art. And you share that no matter what. And, uh, you know, you have this, um, this connection, this camaraderie where immediately you are a friend. And maybe, mm -hmm. you know, down the line, if you keep doing this work, you will see that. It is probably one of the greatest things uh, that it is, is part of this, is this group together is uh, almost 90% uh, individuals who share so many uh, things and mm -hmm. want to share more. And uh, my goal is to bring them together. And it includes writers, artists, 
playwrights, um, occasional collector. <laughs> They're interested, you know, mm-hmm. every every facet of what you know the what today we're calling the creatives, because that is the art world today. That is where we exist. That it has all mm-hmm. risen to the top, like it should have in the first place. And to bring them together, uh, you know, I just, I, it's just, it's a fantastic experience for everybody. And uh, in my mind, it's almost, it's like a, a, a vision of a perfect future where society mm-hmm. has risen to this point where uh, culture is the highest level of societal growth and we have reached it and nothing else matters. And that is what we are discussing because that's what human beings are really about. So, you know, uh, and I'll just end with the point that uh, in these types of groups, the artists are the ones that have been excluded in the past Mm -hmm. um, or the people at the lower tier. And I think you had this discussion with Christy in the podcast I partially listen to. And that is the opposite of what I do. I start with them mm-hmm. because they are the most interesting people, period. Yeah. And it's even, you know, it's, it's our team, our staff. They are fascinating people. It's, it's you. It's, uh, you know, it, it is all of, all of this level of people who are working for change or working for passion right now are the most interesting. And what I've found is that by taking down this fake wall that has been put between them and the art world uh, and allowing them to meet their collectors, meet the writers, meet mm-hmm. the cur- uh, collectors, curators, there is an immediate bond. It is just amazing to see because again if this is an artist who's making something this is the collector who's collecting your thing you share something immediately mm-hmm. and then uh, each side wants to help the other side they want to just they just start talking about who they are and almost like they they felt like they needed to and this was the outlet for it because who else can you maybe tell you know, mm-hmm. other than a collector who believes in your work and why they don't know you. And then a collector buying a piece of art for something that moves them. But who, who are they going to tell directly other than the artists themselves? And then they, had this, then they had this shared bond and they become friends and they help each other over time, just like the rest of the ecosystem of the art world, where we're all networked together. And mm-hmm. the artists of this generation, last generation, are more articulate, more uh, aware of the world, more aware of everything, because they don't live in the basement and struggle, for the most part, with trying to figure out how to make the perfect white painting. You know, they, mm-hmm. they're part of the real world. I keep telling every artist that I work with and that I'm interested in that you are part of the real world today. And that is really important. And that is a shift in the definition of what a contemporary artist is. And Mm -hmm. institutions and academics have to understand that. They can be in vogue, they can be in magazines, they can be in fashion, they can be in music. That is the norm. If they're Mm -hmm. not, they're, they're likely irrelevant. Well, and I think every everything you just mentioned is has been incredible to listen to. And um, starting with your Felix Gonzalez show 15 years ago, up until your James Little, your artist James Little, who's at the Whitney Biennial right now, you're very clearly um, artist focused and artist centric in your approach. I think to your gallery, and it's very clear to me over the last 30 minutes of of picking up on that, and I'm sure everybody else, but. I'd be curious to know kind of your approach um, and what characterizes your relationships with the artists that you represent and work with. Um, it's very clear that you're artist-centric, but I'm just curious to know how that kind of plays out in in the way that you run your gallery. Yeah. Well, if you could do me a favor, so I'm not continuing talking. Yes. If you could maybe read off the first part of our mission statement. 
um, just because yes. I think it contextualizes a mm -hmm. lot and it's easier for me than it's easier for the I think the listener to understand where I'm coming from because otherwise it can sound yep. like some pretty crazy ideas just thrown out uh, that are too uh, too idyllic too too so absolutely we'll start with the about us and move into the vision. So Kavi Gupta amplifies voices of diverse and underrepresented artists to expand the canon of art history. Through innovative and ambitious exhibitions, multimedia programming, and rigorous publications, we foster an involving conversation among international communities about arts and ideas. We believe culture is created by communities and that representation is a step towards inclusivity and justice. Equity in the art field starts with everyone getting a seat at the table, but does not end there. Our vision is to seek out and offer a platform to artists whose vitality expands and deepens the cultural conversation, especially if theirs is a voice that has been marginalized due to their identity, their social or political perspective, or their aesthetic position. Our founder, Kavi Gupta, who everyone we're speaking with today, established this namesake gallery in 2000. All right, thank you, sir. That, uh, that helps. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just curious, what do you think about that? In a as few or as many words as you want. Well, I think that um, it's very clear based on everything explained that you are focused on kind of all these ideas that have been brought to a lot of people's attention over the last two years with the reemergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as a lot of just the current inequities that are very prominent and present in society. But for you to be having this kind of as an integral part of your gallery since 2000, I feel like it's very clear that this is part of the ethos of the gallery rather than maybe something that is could be seen as like a fad or you're jumping on the bandwagon because everybody else is talking about it. Um, so it seems that it's very integral to your gallery and then also manifested and quite evident through the artists that you represent. Yeah, thank you. I, I think that that was probably one of the reasons that we felt like we needed to say it um, mm -hmm. because we have, this has been the way I've thought for the day I started the gallery. Um, you know, and Felix was a unique scenario, but still fits in that the day I started the gallery, I, I decided I was not going to be the third wheel on the tour of an established artist's mm -hmm. representation that mm -hmm. uh, that was not interesting to me or offered any real value other than commercial value, right? You're there to sell mm -hmm. the works to collectors in your neighborhood. And, you know, I, I that wasn't enough, you know? It's like, mm -hmm. um, part of it is, I, I think, you know, the immigrant Part, part of it is, um, you know, access. Part of it is all of these things that just, you look at it and go, what does this mean? Does it really mean anything to you? Why are you doing this? And to mm -hmm. me, it was clear that I felt like, you know, I wanted to participate in some level of change that was inside of me, I was struggling with everything growing up, you know, as a first generation brown person in a place with no brown people, you know, mm -hmm. and kind of assimilate and, but also live my family's culture at the same time and stuck in between and winning nowhere. And, um, you know, and, as I got older, but really clearly over COVID, it just really why it came out is that, you know, I just, I learned that, you know, it was just too important to, not, that I had to focus on all of these artists because mm -hmm. there was, I had empathy for one thing. Uh, my staff and the team we have have empathy. We are these types of people and, um, it, it became brutally clear to me because 
you know, my story is the same as so many of the voices today. And I, I hid from that, just like a lot of others of my generation did. You know, um, uh, a good friend and a great artist, uh, you know, told me, a young artist, you know, told me, um, you're, you know, you're living this Jungian ghost life. This is what you've been living, you know, for so long. And you start to believe it. And I know that I had to do that at some point to get accepted into the art world. I, because I, there was no brown art dealer. Mm -hmm. You know, the art fair in Chicago was here. It was that and Art Basel. Those were the only two. And I remember going there and there was maybe two Asian art dealers and the rest were all American, European, mm -hmm. white, and a few Latino and none from any other part of the world. So I, I knew I wasn't going to be. It didn't matter what I did. Um, but I just, maybe naivety, I just kept going, just like, I, I like this, like, this is what I have to do. But then uh, my father passed away last year. Um, mm, sorry uh, for your loss. Yeah, oh, thank you. Yeah, and you know, I, I didn't have much of a relationship with him, but the main, it was just uh, lots of issues with the difficulty of being the kids of a first generation family coming from a culture that's so different and needs and also he himself only me learning later in life how difficult his life was and not and immigrant parents don't tell you this it's the same with the artists i deal with you know a lot of their parents hide or have hit want to hide their past because they don't want their kids to carry that burden or live with it they want to just give them opportunity and have a fresh start and that can be a really good thing until you get to a point where you're lost and you're trying to find purpose. And the lost part is, for me, okay, I'm now become part of this white established art world, living this persona where maybe they think I'm an Indian prince. Maybe they think I come from an extreme inheritance of something or I'm related to somebody and a sheik. I mean, they, you know, at that time they couldn't want <laughs> anybody apart and I would not deny it. Mm -hmm. And that was enough to get me accepted. Even mm -hmm. though my father was, you know, and, and again, I didn't really know this, you know, he, his parents were very poor farmers. He, uh, was just luckily chosen to go to grade school because somebody saw or listened to how he could read a whole book by himself after he did the uh, migration from Pakistan to India and lost half of his mm -hmm. family. And, you know, uh, and then he, he took his test and he became like the number one grade student, grade school student, like all of Delhi than India. And they're like, oh my God, who is this kid? So just luck, you know, and then he mm -hmm. got to school. They couldn't pay for him to go to school. He scrounged money. He didn't know all of these stories that are just like, you know, heart-wrenching, but so true of real people who have really struggled to, to make it and get, get here. Um, you know, yeah, and anyway, you know, and then he made it through, uh, got into the top college in all of India, like, you know, was just a, was a brilliant man and was still the poorest of this group of like 20 architects, structural engineers, nuclear engineers. He came to this country to finish his degree at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and to work with Bertrand Goldberg. It was like a dream and he was sending money home to all of his family in India and taking care of us and then during his life, lifetime, he he just uh, I learned that you know he started to face the racism that mm -hmm. was inherent. He was not going to get promoted. It didn't matter how smart or how brilliant he was, that he could mm -hmm. go with two hands, or that he could. Uh, he was a brilliant man. Um, he was not. So he, you know, uh, 
he, you know, I think he had kind of a breakdown at some point and our lives were very difficult after that. And I, he moved all over the country just trying to get jobs to support us. And mm-hmm. We were very poor, but you know, we didn't know. We were kind of hidden from that. But uh, yeah, he, I mean, he came to this country with $16 in his pocket, uh, loaned everything from the, the villagers. You know, it's like one of those stories. Mm-hmm. And paid them all back, you know, and kept all their kids going. But he had nothing. You know, and he struggled so hard his whole life, and I didn't know that. I was, I all of a sudden just started believing the life that I'd become like so many of the generation that's past our parents and grandparents of struggle. Mm-hmm. And, but learning that upon his death and really learning it and uh, just said, told me that I, 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 I this is, I got to stop this. I can't do this. I cannot do this. What I really care about is amplifying that message, showing mm-hmm. those people and showing other artists that uh, there are us, we're together, and there's a lot of us. And uh, so I spent a lot of my time going back to the artists I was working with, as well as just talking to any artist that wanted information four or five hours all night, every night, uh, mm-hmm. you know, during COVID, to give them answers, tell them how the art world works, to not give up who they are, to tell their story, which is the most important part. Don't try to make the commercial work that you see selling in New York. Uh, mm-hmm. and all of the things that I've espoused that I've been able to build a community and, a, and an interest around that there is a huge need in the art world for that. And obviously, you know, that started with the interest in black artists, uh, you know, African-American artists at that time and a black, uh, you know, and African and, you know, you name uh, any marginalized group that interest mm-hmm. came because there was something to learn there for there was something to see. There was, it was a way to associate because still to this day, most of the people that are affiliated with museums, um, I just got into a fight with a women's group from a museum uh, this morning. That was funny. Um, they're all white women and they're all giving this money to this cause, you know, for this, for the museum that is going to support diversity. Mm-hmm. But every one of them is living in the richest neighborhood, neighborhoods in a city and don't touch the ground mm-hmm. really what are they what are they doing really other than saying they're giving this money right do they have any friends or neighbors that are from marginalized groups do they do anything else? no they don't mm-hmm. so it's just speak it's just the way this society is built right now that has to change so Anyways, like I told you, I'll keep talking forever. (laughs) Well, I think to keep them and the artists to know that there is there are options and them telling their story, even staying in their cities are more important than anything else. And that trust me, believe me, you will get hurt. There Mm -hmm. are multiple ways to amplify it and I can tell you how, I can show you how, but it has to happen and then we'll get into my whole theory of the good guys club. <laughs> there you go. Well, I'm excited to, to hear that that theory and it's an important one I think to, to share. But going off of kind of what you said um, about conversations with artists during 2020, as well as even this most recent experience with this woman's group that you've been communicating with, I'd be curious to know um, one or two kind of concrete opportunities for growth in this current art world, as there's been a lot of change over the last couple of years, especially given COVID, but if there's anything top of mind that you'd like to to see changed? Well, I mean, the simplest is the, I, there's, there's a lot, but, and they're all connected, but let's say one of them is the acceptance 
of new technology and uh, into the art world, and the most basic being um, the uh, full integration of blockchain and uh, block basically blockchain technology uh, into the art world. And on the most, most basic level, it just has to be, um, sorry, one second. Uh, artists being able to um, authenticate their own works and mm -hmm. put it in and have it marked on the blockchain, right? So if you, and I'm sure I think you've had other speakers talk about this. I don't know if you need me to. Yeah, uh, today's episode actually that just came out is about how the NFTs fit into the okay, into the art right, world. So I'll direct right. everyone to to listen to uh, our conversation with Eric Calderon from Artblocks.io. Perfect. To get the full four on one on blockchain. Eric is an early early believer, and mm -hmm. so the simplest, the simplest of the simplest of all of this is that you attach. Uh, a certificate, a virtual certificate, basically, to every artwork that an artist makes today. And let's just say it's, it's in a logarithm that gets put on the blockchain. It is connected mm -hmm. to the artist and the art piece. And it can do a million things, but the most important things that it can do are it, it can hold lots of information in a very simple manner. So the artist's own words about the piece and uh, the artist's history in their words, um, videos, uh, content, all of the things that can be improperly interpreted or in a hundred years, if we, God forbid, you know, let's just, Look, if, if this technology had existed and, you know, sorry, uh, bad Republicans in Trump era, but mm -hmm. it's a way to allow the truth to be connected to everything that is made mm -hmm. at the time it's made. So you cannot change the truth or you cannot exaggerate it or lie about it or say it doesn't exist. So. In the artist's case, it puts all of that info with the piece, um, plus anything that else can be added, certificate of authenticity, and a residual perpetuity on the resale of their works. And the biggest goal of that is that that is how generational wealth is built. Mm -hmm. And it is too important, too, too important that these artists who are, whose markets are going crazy, and it's almost everybody and anybody, it doesn't really matter. Uh, mm -hmm. If you are, um, if you are exhibiting today, if you are part of the discourse, chances are at some point the value of your work is going to go up. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just going to happen. So attach this allow this to happen the galleries have to and the artists will be able to benefit their heirs will be able to benefit and again this is generational wealth think of it as a perpetuity this is how oil all the families that are oil money steel money and all those industrial those are commodities that are renewable constant perpetuities that don't go away. So mm -hmm. these families forever will get a residual generational wealth. So when a great artist makes a piece, and I mean, I see, I see it and it kills me, you know, everything from say Micheline Thomas, who, you know, when we were working with her, maybe her paintings were 75,000 or 100,000. And we've taken, you know, now they're, they're a million, a million, million and a half. She's only able to benefit from the initial sale. So she can benefit now, but there is, all, what about all the pieces on the market? Mm -hmm. What about 
her daughter? What about her brother and their family? Um, mm-hmm. Those pieces are going to be worth more and more and more. Uh, you can put the numbers together very quickly. There's thousand paintings out there. The residual wealth and the generational wealth that will be had. It's that's that's how you do it. That's mm-hmm. How people start uh, and families start and generations of families start. And if you want to, you know, your Stanford Business School is a great business school, and you know they they I can they can go back and look at, at the stories of how all of these industrial families started. Uh-huh. Uh, these guys these guys are dirt poor, you know. I mean, the oil guys, the steel guys, dirt poor, the poorest of the poor. But they built this generational wealth, and look at where they are now. They're naming museums, so. You just so like they're or inventors of bad um, drugs, you know, <laughs> <laughs> generational wealth, right? That's a perpetuity yep. forever. Artists are the inventors then. They invented mm-hmm. something that is very important to our society. So that is the biggest thing. Sorry, long winded. If that happens, so many corrections will happen. No, I think that's, I mean, that's it's definitely something that. I've considered, but not to this extent. And I think everyone listening probably isn't familiar that if somebody sells a piece of work, they more often than not only get a, a fraction of that. And if it's split between a gallery, some of it goes to a gallery, some of it goes to them. But then after that, it's kind of in the hands of the secondary market and you don't really get any additional earnings from your original composition mm-hmm. or painting. And, um, but go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it, and it's a perfect win-win-win scenario. I'm a big Mm -hmm. fan of that. Everything, you know, it's a cliche, but it's a way to maneuver through the art world if you can convince these people that everybody wins. Because on the resale of these works, um, the value, the inherent value of an art piece will be worth more if it has a certificate with it, that the artist has verified it. Mm -hmm. So the seller and the buyer would be willing to give up 5% to have that with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you can extrapolate that, you can pretty much imagine that any piece that doesn't have it is going to be worth less as it should, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, because it could be that fake Rothko. You know, you can fake a certificate of authenticity, you can Mm -hmm. fake anything. But you cannot fake this. So it is a real win-win for everybody. And even a dealer, let's say, or the auction houses, all of them. This will raise the value of all of these artists. And then when the content is there, you're raising the value in my book even more. Because Mm -hmm. instead of commodifying the piece or talking about it as... Uh, a commodity because it's worth the next amount. The minute you put that piece up on auction, it is all of a sudden going to have these stories. And these stories are so important and vital. And most of the people that are in these auction houses, they're sadly working for these very wealthy white male-owned galleries, have zero empathy, cannot tell the story. They tell Mm -hmm. I, I. I don't know if you've been to an art fair, but um, if you do go, try to maybe go into one of these booths and try to listen to, uh, these are all horrible cliches, but let's just say, you know, a graduate of Exeter and Choate and then Ivy League school and have him try to describe a work by the Astrogates, or a mm-hmm. work by any artist of social consequence today, and it is, it's, 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 hurt, it's painful. Painfully. <laughs> so painful. painful that even me thinking about it is causing me to have shivers. And Everyone listening, Kavi is wincing right now. <laughs> I can see his face. <laughs> and... It's, 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 it's one of the biggest things that's also killing the art world in every mm-hmm. way, the credibility of it, uh, that, 
you know, if they believe that is what causes commercial success, that's that's an end. That, mm-hmm. that can end very quickly because you're selling fake stories, fake goods. You're not you're selling something that unless somebody else or the or the people do their research or that artist is able on their own, thank God, to make their mark, it is going to lose value because it won't carry that information with it. So, but if they had that information with it, had the ability to tell the real story, isn't it only going to be worth more? Mm-hmm. So I don't know why the art world doesn't learn this lesson, but for sure, but it is obviously, it's the money now that is more important than the money later. Mm-hmm. And it is who can sell to who, it doesn't matter who, but if you have the connection to sell to somebody, it doesn't matter what you say to them. You could, most of them, I mean, the bigger point is that half of them will just make up a story. That mm-hmm. is the worst part. And the cliches and the boxes that they put these artists in are so pitiful. Um, they've gotten better because there's a lot of us out there now. And there's a lot of, you, know, you, you just cannot get away with trying to put an artist in a box. They do it. They have to. That's how you sell mm-hmm. it. But uh, it is, it scares me because you see the end coming from that. In today's world, when all mm-hmm. information is available, transparency will be there. If you don't tell the real story, I give me a, an analogy that compares. I mean, you're s- selling fake goods mm-hmm. to people who are buying it for the wrong reasons, and then they're utilizing it for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And they are telling the wrong story in their social gatherings. And everything just goes wrong from there. Also true. <laughs> and, and speaks to all of the wretchedness that I think sometimes is, is present and prominent in the art world. But um, in the interest of time, I want to move on to just our signature question. Um, so for everyone listening, hopefully by this point you're familiar with the signature question, but I'll repeat it. Um, so Kavi, obviously it's quite apparent that you're doing what you're meant to be doing and you've had a very successful career, I think championing a lot of voices and elevating a lot of both Chicago artists and artists not from from that area. But I'd be curious to know if you could have any job in the art world, what would it be? You can of course keep your job, but you can borrow someone else's job or devise a dream job. Some examples from past guests have been to be an investigator of patronage and lineage of different artworks. Uh, Cheyenne Westfall from Phillips Auction House wants to create the Westfall collection, just taking all of the best art and putting it into one building. Um, but I'd be curious to know what you'd, you'd be doing. Okay. Um, it's funny, I really thought about this uh, as we've been, you know, trying to get together for months now. And- Got my answer because it, it's changed because the art world is changing so much. Um, I I am so happy and clear in what I'm doing right now mm-hmm. that it is the right thing in every way, and we are just such a great, huge group, well oiled, all of our, so many spaces, so many opportunities that we know we can't fail. Um, we just need to get have more opportunity. So it's hard for me to think now of what else, because I'm trying mm-hmm. to think of in the art world, let's say, what else is there that is right, that mm. is right right now. So. I, I can't see that other than a few institutions like the Perez, where Franklin Sermons is given as an encyclopedic museum, all of his curators, who are mainly all women, free reign to do whatever they want, where other encyclopedic museums cannot do that. They're run by old regimes and moneyed 
affluent families who have risen up in meetings and said, if your mandate is going to be this year to promote diversity only, I won't support it. Mm -hmm. And I know that for a fact from three museum trustee meetings, encyclopedic museums. Mm -hmm. So it can't be a museum. I have to whittle my way down. It would, it would have to be an institution, something like the Perez, which is redefining the model, mm-hmm. um, and a a bigger. Uh, to me, it would just have to. It had to be something unique, something new. It would be a combination mm-hmm. of what we're doing, which is giving options to the ecosystem of the art world in the right way not abusing it, not giving an artist a plate of the beautiful steak and prime rib and think and make them happy. And in the back, the art dealers are keeping the buffet to themselves. Mm-hmm. And the artists will never know because they're controlling the art world. It is an option that is there for them that is not there now. Um, so let's define that. Right now, the options are and to go to these big dealers who are clawing their way back in because the marginalized artists are valuable now. Mm-hmm. And they're doing anything they can. And these artists have to make choices. And they don't have options. There's very few. You know, I, I, I like to think we are one, but there needs to be a lot more of us. So let's say a, a, a huge institutional thing that might exist in multiple cities that starts from the ground up, that gives the starting opportunity uh, for the ecosystem, and that includes production, catalogs, mm-hmm. port at every level, which is what we do to take and help an artist grow, find those voices. And then, you know, uh, the higher level institution that shows them. So uh, I guess that's that's what I remember now. Um, (laughs) When my daughter was five, she said to us, uh, mommy works at a museum, daddy owns an art gallery. When I grow up, I want to own a museum. And we were like, I, I, I think she's got it. Yeah, I think. <laughs> so, she's reinventing the model. Yes. And that's really, I think, so some type of foundation, which is mm-hmm. not something that could be defined today. Maybe the, similar to the Getty, but look, Getty's history is just the Getty's history. Mm-hmm. Is big and supported by this good guys network, which is all of the good people in the art world, they get together and they bring all of their friends who are also all good people, because that's what you do, you hang around, and they become bigger than the side that is just trying to take advantage and scrape money and become wealthy or have their egos fed or shed fake tears because they care about Mm. these artists so much, you know, uh, but that, so a huge, foundation that supports the bottom all levels of the art ecosystem mm-hmm. I would like to run help run that with all of the philosophies that give agency to the doers mm-hmm. well sign Georgia and me up for this this club we're, we're ready to we're ready to join all the good people of the art world, because I feel like that's, it's, I'm sure you have a good list of, of people yeah, it's that all would we be, deal with. be in that, that tribe. Yeah. And I'm sure a, a list of people you also wouldn't want nope. to bring into the fold. Yeah. <laughs> all, of us, all of us in the art world need to have a no asshole policy. It's, we have to, you know, we don't need every golden apple. Mm-hmm. That is the way it has been portrayed. You're afraid to say no, because opportunity seems limited. Mm-hmm. So we've got to show opportunity. We've got to prove that you don't need every golden apple. 
and that you can say no to the asshole. I think that's a really good place to to wrap up our conversation. And obviously, putting yourself first is is one of the most important things out there right now um, and prioritizing yourself and, and what you want out of this world. But Kavi, thank you so, so much for coming on to Declassified today. Georgia and I are so grateful for your continued willingness to sit down with us and give us a glimpse of your life at, at a gallery and, and what keeps you busy. And I'm excited for everyone to, to listen in on everything that we've talked about. Uh, and speaking to everyone tuning in today, thank you so much. We'll be back next week with another episode. Uh, but before you you close your streaming app, please check out uh, Kavi and all of what his team has been up to over at, at KaviGupta underscore on Instagram. Also, please follow our Instagram at declassified.pod. Check out our website, declassified-pod.com to gain access to a summary of the episode with potentially unfamiliar words explained and links to the galleries, museums we talked about today. And finally, if you could all probably guess what I'm about to say, please, please, please subscribe to our podcast on your preferred streaming platform so you can get new notifications when episodes air. Thank you all so much. And Kavi, thank you again. Thank you.